when glucose in the blood is filtered by the kidneys, about 90% of that glucose gets reabsorbed, and it gets reabsorbed by something called the sodium glucose transporter 2. So if you inhibit that sodium glucose transporter 2, such as with a SGLT2 inhibitor, a sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitor, then you are not going to reabsorb that sugar, and what you get is what is called glycosuria or glucosuria, where you are urinating out the glucose into the urine. The excretion of glucose into the urine is actually something that's been known for a very long time. It's one of the ways it was diagnosed in the early days. And so what would happen is physicians would actually taste the urine and it would be very sweet. And that's because there was so much sugar in the blood that you didn't reabsorb all the urine and you would have this polyuria where you have an excessive water loss with the dehydration that occurs because of this osmotic diuresis that the glucose is causing. Very important medical lessons can be obtained from this historical fact. So when the professor hands out a cup of urine to all the medical students on day one and he says, do as I do, and he dips his finger into the urine and then tastes it, and then all the medical students do the exact same thing, he says, now you have learned the power of observation. I dipped my ring finger into the urine, but I tasted with my pinky finger. All right, well, it seems that it's about the right time where I can begin to feel comfortable talking about SGL2 inhibitors. I'm one of those people that has the philosophy I don't want to be the first person using a drug, and I don't want to be the last person prescribing a drug, and that's how I feel about talking about medications as well. Early on, it's very challenging to feel comfortable providing good information since a lot will change as more is learned, and indeed that has been the case with these medications. We are learning the benefits and some scary things about these medications, and as you urinate out that glucose, some very nice things happen, like weight loss, which is a huge benefit compared to the weight gain that you get with insulin and sulfonylureas, and these drugs don't cause much hypoglycemia by themselves, unlike insulin and sulfonylureas. On the flip side, who knew they could potentially make your genitals disappear? And that's been the 2018 story for these drugs, when the FDA put out a warning of rare but obviously very serious cases of necrotizing fasciitis of the perineum, also known as Fournier's gangrene. It doesn't happen a lot with these medications, but it's something we have to watch for, and another reason why if patients hear about this stuff or watch a commercial advertisement, as these are all currently brand-name drugs, and when this is mentioned in the commercial, they're going to have second thoughts, as that is a very traumatic event. It reminds me of a Howard Stern episode, for those who listen to Howard Stern. If you don't, there's a guy named Sal, and he's kind of an over-sexualized guy. And they have a hypnotist, and the hypnotist is doing some funny things. But one of the things he does is he hypnotizes Sal, and he wakes up, and his genitals are gone. For those of you who don't listen to the show, here's the clip of it. What's going on, Sal? Wait. My cock is gone. My cock is gone. What do you mean? Hold Dude, it. Stop. My cock no, is gone. Wait a second. 
situation. Calm down. Calm down. And many of you who work in a hospital have seen Fournier's gangrene probably several times. And when patients come off the ventilator, we have to explain why they surgically had genitals or parts of their genitals removed to save their life with this very rapidly spreading flesh-eating infection. And I always envision that if this happened to me and I'm coming off of a ventilator, I am going to have a Sal Governelli reaction. So just be ready for that if you're trying to explain it to me. Take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. Sporty ate it. There's nothing there. Oh, my God. Don't put my cock back, please. Put it back. Sal, close your eyes. I totally sympathize because I am scared of getting a Foley catheter. That's one of my big fears is getting hospitalized and needing a Foley. But anyway, um, these drugs, despite that terrifying possibility that rarely happens, they do have some very beneficial effects, such as the weight loss, because you're getting rid of sugar into the urine. So you would expect to be getting rid of weight by losing that sugar. There's a reduction in systolic blood pressure by the osmotic diuretic effect, and there also seems to be a benefit in reducing cardiovascular mortality in patients with established coronary vascular disease, as well as improving the outcomes in patients with congestive heart failure. Again, not totally surprising if there is a diuretic effect, which there is. Now, backing up for a second, where I said there's an improvement in cardiovascular effect, I think it's important to state that there needs to be some perspective about this. So the trials showing that were canagliflozin, or Invocana is the brand name, and empagliflozin, which has a brand name of Jardian. So looking at the empagliflozin trial, and this is from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. The study was empagliflozin, cardiovascular outcomes, and mortality in type 2 diabetes. And what it found is in those type 2 diabetics at high risk for cardiovascular events who received empagliflozin as compared with a placebo, they did have a lower rate of primary composite cardiovascular outcomes and death from any cause when they were on the study drug. Now, it turns out while it did decrease cardiovascular causes of death, there wasn't much difference between the groups in having a myocardial infarction or stroke, meaning in the rates of having a myocardial infarction or stroke. But as far as decreasing death from those things, yep, it did decrease it. But we need a lot of caution because it's one trial and these patients were on lipid-lowering drugs and other diabetes medications. Um, but one thing we can say is also there was decreased rate of hospitalization for heart failure when you looked at empagliflozin compared to placebo. But again, it would be ideal, and I don't think we're going to get this ideal data, but it would be ideal if everybody was on the same stat and the same blood pressure lowering medications, the same diets, you know, those sorts of things that can be confounding factors. As far as canagliflozin or Invacana, if you look at the 2017 New England Journal of Medicine with a trial titled Canagliflozin in Cardiovascular and Renal Events in Type 2 Diabetes, I think this was actually two trials put together, fewer patients taking the Invicana did have a decrease of death from cardiovascular causes, decreases in non-fatal myocardial infarction, and non-fatal stroke occurrence. 
However, and this is a big however, there was an increase in amputations in the canagliflozin group. So yes, those patients, as we all know, um, had diabetes and a lot of these patients had prior amputation and peripheral vascular disease and neuropathy and so are at higher risk for amputation. But nevertheless, when they looked at it, the canagliflozin group had a higher rate of amputation than the placebo group. Now, it should be stated that with the empagliflozin trials, there has not so far shown an increased risk of lower limb amputation. So we need more data on the SGLT2 inhibitors. And a lot of people, I think, are cautious with these drugs in several diabetic populations, particularly diabetics who seem very high risk for a foot amputation, you know, particularly those who have a lot of neuropathy, foot deformities, known vascular disease, previous ulcerations or active ulcerations. I think we need to be very cautious with using SGLT2 inhibitors for now and get more data and see what we know in the future. Okay, so what else can go wrong? Well, we talked about the most severe groin infections like Fournier's gangrene, but of course, with SGLT2 inhibitors, you're going to be increasing the amount of sugar that the urine sees, that the perineum sees, that the genitals see. And so in many trials, there was increased vulval vaginal candidiasis in women. In several trials, there has been increase in urinary tract infections. Now, it's hard, I think, sometimes as a hospitalist when we see people in the hospital and they have a UTI and these medications are something that they've been taking for a long time, how do you advise them going forward? And usually what we just say is talk with your primary care physician, but this can increase the risk of urinary tract sepsis. And if a patient is very prone to UTIs or vulval vaginal candidiasis, there have been times where I have advised them that this just may not be the drug for you. Likewise, a very frequent thing we'll see in hospitals and happens to patients a lot is hypotension and syncope that can occur from hypotension. So not unexpected when you have an SGLT2 inhibitor that's causing this basically an osmotic diuresis and therefore intravascular volume contraction and lower blood pressure, you're going to be at a higher risk for hypotension and theoretically then syncope. So you have to take that into account in your syncope patients who are taking these medications. Again, at the same time, there can be a benefit, right? So if you have a very hypertensive patient, these drugs may help the hypertension. So it's just like nuclear energy. It can be used for something very good or it can be used in a bad way, and you have to think about how to use it. Patients that seem to run dry and hemoconcentrated, those dry patients probably are not who you want to start on an SGLT2 inhibitor. On the other hand, the patient who tends to run wet and have CHF may benefit from these medications. By the way, it's not just the osmotic diuresis that may decrease the heart failure with SGLT2 inhibitors. There may be other factors such as decreasing inflammation and cardiac fibrosis, but this needs to be worked out a little bit more before I talk about it prime time. And one of the problems in general with new classes of medications, particularly as more and more of these medications come out, is is there class effects? So 
bone fractures is one of those things that was raised with canagliflozin, so again, Invacana. And we're not totally sure why there was reduced bone mass and increased bone fractures, but when they looked at it, for instance, with dipagliflozin and empagliflozin, it wasn't there in the data that we have available for those drugs. And again, it's not even totally clear whether there is a major effect on the bones. Like after starting one of these drugs, could there be more orthostatic hypotension, dizziness, falls, and syncope that cause a fracture? And so a lot of this stuff still needs to be worked out. There is a group of patients where I would say for now, you should try and avoid prescribing these medications too. And that's your type 2 diabetics that are becoming ketosis prone. So if any of your type 2 diabetics, as we all know, um, can get ketosis, particularly as the disease progresses, the pancreas burns out, you stop making as much insulin as you used to, you can get diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, clinicians really need to be on the lookout for this because it can be confusing. So what happens is these patients, when they get diabetic ketoacidosis as a type 2 diabetic taking an SGLT2 inhibitor, what happens is often these patients are euglycemic. So what do I mean by that? Their blood sugars are not that high. So often with a type 1 diabetic, one, we know they're type 1, so they're more prone to ketoacidosis, so we're looking for it more. But often their blood sugars you know, are 400, 900, 1100, and you're noticing the bicarbs low. Well, what if you're a type 2 diabetic and your glucose is low or in the normal range, and yet you're presenting with a DKA picture except for a very high blood sugar? If you're on one of these medications, think about DKA because these medications can make these patients prone to DKA in the absence of hyperglycemia. Now the thought process on why this DKA may happen is that SGLT2 inhibitors by lowering glycemia and by lowering that blood sugar from an insulin independent mechanism may increase the glucagon to insulin ratio. There's the glucagon again. So that's why I did a separate lecture on glucagon because it's so important in understanding these medicines and everything about diabetes. But because there's an insulin independent mechanism by blocking an SGLT2 area in the kidney, what you may have is increased rates of lipolysis, hepatic ketogenesis, and an increased tendency towards DKA because you are lowering the insulin output. So again, you got to use these medications cautiously, but I don't want you to be too cautious. I'm not arguing for or against, just trying to give you both sides of the picture. And when you look at a lot of these new diabetic medications, and particularly look at it compared to old medications, there can be real benefit. But even just looking at the new ones, so if we look at a Journal of American Medical Association, where they looked at a title of a study called Association Between Use of SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1s, and DPP-4s with all-cause mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, this was a systematic review, so it was a meta-analysis, but SGLT2 inhibitors looked really good. Looking at this data set, in type 2 diabetes, SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 
agonist reduce mortality more than placebo, more than no treatment, and more than DPP-4 inhibitors. Now, these were indirect comparisons, and what we really need in the diabetes world is trials directly comparing the different classes and types of medications that we use for type 2 diabetes. That would be extremely valuable to have large trials looking at that. But for now, we have to individualize treatment based on patient's characteristics. And with diabetes, there can be so many other factors, right? The things that we've talked about, like neuropathy or heart failure or hypertension or CHF. And that's why we have to really think about what we're prescribing and why we are prescribing it. But at the moment, this is one of the things in the arsenal. Now, there are other problems, like the fact that these are all brand name drugs at the moment, so they are very expensive. Again, another individualized patient characteristic. What is the financial toxicity to that individual, let alone the whole system and you know, country of United States of America and our medical system? But in particularly, can that individual afford it. If they can't afford it and you prescribe it and they don't take it, it's not going to do a darn thing. On the flip side, one of the things that may increase compliance with these medications is explaining that looking at a lot of these SGLT2 inhibitors, there has been weight loss of two to three kilograms reported in multiple trials, and it seems that the weight loss appears to be sustained over time. Now, that can be a huge benefit because, as we know, obesity and insulin resistance can be a major problem for a lot of our type 2 diabetics. Not all of them, but for a lot of them. And there's still a lot more to be learned. We need more post-marketing surveillance studies and data. And it looks like there's a trend right now that these SGLT2 inhibitors may be beneficial in preventing the progression of chronic kidney disease in type 2 diabetics, which would be awesome. We love that effect in our ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and it would be great to have another class of medications, but really understand how to use them and how to use them safely if that turns out to be a class effect, which I think it's too early to say that it is. And while there may be a beneficial potentially down the line that we'll see with chronic kidney disease, the problem is there may be an increase in acute kidney injury, particularly when you're getting dehydration in using it with other medications like ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, NSAIDs. So again, how do we use these medications with other medications in these already complex patients? These patients already are on a lot of medications, but what we can say is that we're starting to learn. So we know that if you add on an SGLT2 inhibitor to somebody that's on metformin, you're going to have a further reduction in hemoglobin A1C. You're going to have a further reduction in weight and a further reduction in blood pressure than just using metformin alone. So the story on this class of medications, like any new class of medications, is going to unfold. We are going to learn benefits and harms as time goes on. And that's the beauty of medicine. Our knowledge keeps increasing with each passing day. All right, so you've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat. I hope that provided some insight and help into understanding these medications and prescribing them. Again, this podcast is really meant for healthcare practitioners and is not meant to be 
individual patient advice, and I will catch you on the next round.